Well, good evening. Welcome to the Christmas period, which apparently has started with gusto. Thank you, Scott, for that. This evening, we are coming to the end of our series on the first 11 chapters. First 11 chapters of Genesis. And it's a little embarrassing to say that the passage we'll be reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 12. But think of it as a little bit of injury time. Uh, after our series on the first 11 chapters. So uh, let's read uh, from Genesis chapter 12. If you, if you just want to listen to it, I'm going to read from the New International Version. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 8. And uh, I'll put the, the text up later of this passage. The time in history we're now looking at is about 4,000 years ago. Jesus was born about 2,000 years ago, so we're talking about 2,000 years before Jesus. That's why we're calling our study this evening the beginning of God's global plan. This is the beginning, if you like, giving some details of the coming plan. So Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, And go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, or all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. Somebody has described Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, they've described it as like God's greenhouse. If you're a gardener, you may have a greenhouse, and what you tend to do is you plant your seeds and you grow them to a certain size in the greenhouse where they're protected and where they get some warmth, even in cold weather. Once they've grown to a certain size, then they're put outside, and there they develop much further. So a greenhouse is where you see, in small form, plants that are going ultimately to be much bigger. And in a way, in this first book of the Bible, what we see are some of the key concepts that uh, we see in fuller form in the rest of the Bible, but we see the ideas being planted in Genesis. And then after Genesis, those ideas are developed much further, right to the very end of the Bible. So what we've been looking at so far is really the beginning of everything, if you like, of the key ideas that are planted in these early chapters and which are going to be developed through the rest of the Bible. So since this is our last one, it's probably useful just to look backwards a bit and review some of the key ideas that we've already have been thinking about. First of all, we looked in the very first page of the Bible at the beginning of the world, the beginning of the universe, and in particular, the beginning of the human race and God's mission for mankind, why God put human beings on the earth. And their job was to look after the earth, to develop it, to um, plow it, to get it to produce crops, and to look after it. 
Then the next key idea we came across was the beginning of what we call sin. When people disobey God. Now, committing a sin is not the same as committing a crime. Some people say, well, I'm not a sinner. The police have never, I've never done anything that I could be arrested for. But we're talking here even just of selfishness, people going their own way, people rejecting what God has asked them to do. And the effect of that was the corruption of the whole world. The first family ended in disaster. The first societies ended in corruption. And indeed, the whole world became violent and evil. That brought us to the next key concept, which was the need for judgment and a new beginning. And and we looked at how God had to destroy the corrupt life on earth. But he did save one family, uh, and this was necessary if he was going to save the human race. And he saved the animals too, through the, the ark or the boat which Noah, a man called Noah built. Then we get the story of the beginning of nations. God almost forced the human race to spread out over the earth. Probably part of his strategy was, uh, at one point after the flood, to divide the earth up into continents so that people were physically separated. Now, why did God do that? Some people look at all the nations and they see the wars between nations and they say nations are a very bad idea. It produces nationalism. It produces rivalry. Why could we not just all be one great united human race? It's a good question. But I think if humanity was united in one big global state, it would be horrendous to live in. Even in the last hundred years, we have seen what has happened whenever certain nations become very powerful. I'm thinking of during or before and during the Second World War, when you had people like Hitler who came to power and who ruled, uh, extended his empire, as it were, throughout all of Europe. And then there was Stalin in Russia and in the Soviet Union. And he also had a real lust for power and wanted to extend his empire. Before the Second World War, Hitler and Stalin made a pact. They were united, at least on paper. Imagine if they had been genuinely united in purpose. How different Europe and Eastern Europe would be today. But there was just something about them and their commitment to their racial identity, to their nationalism, that caused them to fight each other. And actually, as a result of that, Europe is a much better place to live in now. And belatedly, the Soviet Union uh, uh, has joined that too. So in some ways, the beginning of nations, the creation of nations, was actually a way to constrain excessive power and evil. Because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so it was actually God's way of ensuring that human race did not destroy itself through the abuse of power. There's coming a time in history, the Bible says, when we might see something very close to that. And that will be a horrendous time to live in.
Then we're looking tonight to end our series at the beginning of God's global plan. Having formed the nations, God's plan was to reach the nations and to save the nations. And in the words that we read, which he spoke to Abraham, that all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And what we see, first of all, we will see here through this man called Abraham is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And Israel and its history really is uh, traced through the rest of the Old Testament. And, And we'll see in a minute what role that has. And that ultimately then leads on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of God's global plan, God's plan to bless all nations on earth. So let's look first of all at this man that we read about, a man called Abraham. He was originally called Abraham, but his name was changed to Abraham. And the A-B in Hebrew means father. So Abraham was not only the father of the Israeli race, but also actually the father of other nations in the Middle East. So here is part of what we read. God's purpose for Abraham. Do you notice what he said? And just look and see, do you see any key words? When you read a passage from the Bible, it's always very good to underline or highlight any words that occur quite frequently. Now, you don't have to be a theologian to guess what is the key word in this passage. If you count up the number of times God says, talks about blessing, five times In just these two verses, he talks about blessing. He says, I will bless you, he says to Abraham. I will make you a blessing. So Abraham would bring blessing to other people. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And at the end, he says, all peoples or all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So you get the impression that God is a God who wants to bless people. Now we'll look at what that means in practice uh, in a moment. But you notice there's also the opposite of blessing. And he says, whoever curses you, I will curse. So what does it mean to curse someone and to be cursed? Now, if you've read through the book of Genesis, you'll know that this key word blessing goes right through the whole book Now, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse summary of the whole book of Genesis, but it is very interesting if we just take a few minutes to look at the book of Genesis through this window of blessing and cursing. Obviously, when God spoke to Abram, it was a key part of God's heart that he wants to bless people. So let me just give you a whistle-stop tour of the book of Genesis, and we'll look particularly at the theme of blessing, the blessing and the curse. Now, in the first part of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, we have three stories about the planet Earth from three different perspectives. The first one is the creation of the world. The second uh, story of uh, this, this world is uh, sin. Just move on to the next one, Alex, please. Good. And how sin... And rebellion and rejection of God corrupts the world, corrupts people, it even corrupts 
the natural environment as well. And then the third story is about how the world was destroyed, but how humanity was saved through that judgment. So three different pictures, uh, three different aspects of uh, this world, the environment as we might call it. Now, from the point of view of blessing and cursing, let's look at those three. If I've got my order right, sorry, no, we'll, we'll come back to those in a minute, okay? The second half of the book, it's slightly more than a half, is a three, the stories of three people that we call the patriarchs. Abraham, then there's the story which is called the story of Isaac from chapter 25 up to 36, and lastly, the story of Jacob, as it is called. Now, actually, in each of those things, it's not just the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's Abraham and his son, then Isaac and his son, and lastly, Joseph and one of his sons. So, actually, the first one is Abraham and Isaac. There's a lot about Isaac in Abraham's story. Then, when we move to the story of Isaac, there's a lot about Jacob. And lastly, when it says, now the story of Jacob, actually most of it is about Joseph, the son of Jacob. So that's a, a simple way of thinking, up, thinking about the book of Genesis, dividing it into those six sections. Now, let's go back and look at it now through the window of blessing. If you remember, in Genesis chapter 1, when God created the animals, it says he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When he blessed the humans, Adam and Eve, the first people he made, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, uh, God's blessing on the human race and indeed on the animal kingdom was that his blessing was shown through many descendants or many offspring, as we say. But in the second section, we don't get any blessing. But what we do get is the curse. What happened was the devil deceived the woman Eve and as a result of that, creation is cursed. Even the plants seemed to join in the rebellion against God, resisted God's purpose and grew thorns so that they couldn't be eaten, which was indeed their original purpose. So that left the world in a terrible state, suffering not blessing but the curse of God. And in the story of Noah and the flood, we see that the world, despite the judgment or through the judgment, the world is saved from the curse. The result of the flood was actually the lifting of the curse. And after the flood, the world became much more productive. In that second section, during that period, farming was a terrible job. It was very, very difficult to grow anything. The the ground was so unresponsive It was frustrating and really hard work, real slavery to get anything to grow. That was part of the curse. And as a result of the flood, the world became much more productive and fruitful. So in that sense, uh, we get blessing again. Now, let's look at the stories briefly of the three patriarchs. First of all, the story of Abraham. The promise to Abraham was that not only would God bless him, but he would be God's means of blessing all nations. And later in Abram's life, God is more specific about how that would happen. It would be through one of his descendants, one of the descendants called the promised seed, 
the promised offspring or promised descendant. Then we get the story of Isaac and Jacob. And this is interesting because here we get Jacob deceives his father. Jacob desperately wanted the blessing to inherit the blessing so that it would be passed on to him. But he went about it the wrong way. A bit like Eve was deceived by Satan, Isaac was deceived by his own son Jacob. And if you read the text, the wording is actually quite frightening. It was actually Jacob's mother, Rebecca. She had this plan so that Jacob would get the blessing rather than Esau. And when she put it to Jacob, she said, she said to him, go in and deceive your father and you will get the blessing. And Jacob said, but if I do that, I will be cursed. And Rebecca said those terrible words, let the curse fall on me. And she was prepared to accept that whatever that meant so Jacob did do that and again there's very little well there is the blessing that was given to Jacob but he obtained it in the wrong way and his life was a frustrating life the first woman he married turned out to be a woman that he didn't love after all and everything in his life seemed to be frustration and it's as though the curse the frustration the unproductive Uh, aspect and the uh, frustrating work uh, of the the curse was experienced in Jacob's own life. And then we come finally to the story of Jacob and his son Joseph. And in that story we see that through Joseph the world was saved from famine. An unproductive world where nothing would grow, no food would grow. That part of the world was in danger of being wiped out. But through Joseph Uh, putting his life into the hands of God, the world was saved. And at the end of the story, we find that Jacob, who had experienced in his own life something of the curse, actually was enabled by God to bless the ruler of the world's biggest superpower, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so it's almost in a small sense we see that through through Abram's descendants, the nations of the earth were blessed. So, it's just an interesting picture of the structure of Genesis, particularly through the idea of blessing and curse. And let me just ask you this question. What does God's blessing look like? And what does the curse look like? We sometimes say to one another, God bless you. I pray that God would bless you. What does that mean? Does it mean you'll become wealthy? Does it mean you'll be successful in your exams? I hope you are, but is that necessarily a sign of God's blessing? And is it, is God, what what happens if you're under a curse? Does it mean you come out in all sorts of warts and you look horrible, you look like a witch? What does it mean if you were under a curse? Well, let's look at how the pictures that Genesis gives of that. When God blessed, the animals and when God blessed people it took the form of life being very fruitful and productive even when the curse was lifted from the earth the earth became very productive and fruitful so think of blessing uh, taking the form of being fruitful and productive and the curse was the opposite people who lived under the curse Whenever they they had to work really hard and their work was frustrating and unproductive. It was almost like slavery. 
They worked hard, but they got no benefit for themselves. So think of blessing and cursing being cursed in uh, those terms. And do bear that in mind because those ideas of being fruitful on one hand, even fruitful in our lives today, and experience the frustration of trying to do things but just being unable to produce anything fruitful is uh, sometimes the picture of being under a curse. So let's now turn to Abraham himself just for a few moments to look at Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. He's also, as I mentioned, the father of other nations in the Middle East, particularly uh, Muslim nations in the Middle East. They all look to Abraham as their father. But God chose Abraham. Then Abraham uh, increased to become a family and then eventually to become a nation, the nation known as Israel. And God chose that nation for a particular, particular purpose, particularly to be a witness on earth to the one true God, upholding what we call monotheism among the nations. I mean, the common belief uh, in almost just everywhere in the world at this time was that there were many gods. And even in the world today, that would be the common belief. But Abraham was probably one of the first people to be re- have it revealed to him that there is one true God who created this world. And the nation of Israel was to preserve that truth, to uphold it in the midst of pagan nations across the world, but always to be true to that idea that there is one true God. And Israel did preserve that, although they were imperfect in many ways. They preserved that teaching right to this very day. Secondly, Israel was God's vehicle for giving the scriptures. The Bible that we have Certainly the first half of it, the Old Testament, was written by Jews, a small number of Jews who believed in God. And even other Jews tried to destroy the scriptures. And yet they've been uh, preserved for us most accurately by the nation of Israel so that even Christians today have full access to the Old Testament. Now, where things started to go wrong for Israel is that they were chosen by God, but they thought that God had chosen them because they were special. So because God said, I have chosen you from among all the other nations, they felt there must be something special about us. We must be the best of nations. God said, actually, I chose you because you were the worst. You were the nation that nobody else wanted. And so I chose you. Some of us may remember when we used to play football when we were young, you would, everybody would line up against the wall, and you had two people who picked the teams, and the first one chose the best player, the second chose the second best player, and so on. And you may, some of you may have known the feeling, as I did, of being left at the end. There may be a couple of, two or three of us left, and somebody says, oh, you can have those lot. Uh, they won't make any difference. That's basically what happened to Israel. None of the other spiritual powers wanted Israel and God said well I'll take them and God says that's why I chose you but Israel unfortunately became arrogant and proud of the fact that they were chosen one of the the next reasons why God chose them was to be like a a large scale model 
of what it looks like to have a personal relationship with God. Even the enemies that Israel faced round about are pictures of sort of enemies to the Christian life, to living a fulfilled Christian life. But as I mentioned, Israel didn't really understand their mission. At least they forgot their purpose. They forgot that their purpose was to bring God's blessing to the nations. As we read tonight, the manifesto that God gave to Abram was your purpose in life and your, gener- your, your subsequent descendants are to bring blessing to the other nations. Israel despised the other nations. They kept themselves utterly, secret, utterly, utterly separate. And in New Testament times, when God was going to send the message to the other nations, it was Israel who resisted God's purpose at every turn and ended up destroying themselves as a nation because they refused to accept God's uh, manifesto originally given to Abraham. But God, despite that, still fulfilled, has still fulfilled his mission. So let's see how God's promise to Abraham about his gl- global plan actually was fulfilled. And here we're coming to the New Testament. So Abraham was 2,000 years before the New Testament. God had promised that one of his descendants, through one of his descendants, all nations would be blessed. Now let me ask you a question. How many people in this world believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? The God of the Old Testament. I think if I were to ask for a show of hands even in here, most hands would go up. So you believe in the same God, if you're a Christian, you believe in the same God that Abraham believed in. Who was it who had brought us to that point? Can you think of any Jew who has brought more than a handful of non-Jews, of Gentiles, to know the God of Abraham? And yet, through Jesus Christ, millions upon millions of people across the world have come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No one in history, no Jewish person has had even a, a drop in the, the ocean of impact that compared with what Jesus Christ has had. And so Abram's promised descendant through whom God would bless all nations was Jesus Christ. You just need to look at history to see that. And that's exactly how the New Testament starts. In Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, The very first verse says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew starts with Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so he traces from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And interestingly, at the end of Matthew's gospel, almost the very last verse, he says this. Jesus says to his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations. And here we see the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bring blessing to all nations, to go to all nations and bring them to become followers of Jesus. And that would fulfill God's promise to Abraham of blessing all nations. Abraham was a prototype of how someone can experience that blessing. And in particular, he is a prototype of people who are saved by faith. Not by religion, not by trying to be good, not by doing good works or by keeping the law, 
but simply by trusting God. That's a radical concept. No other religion, if I could put it like that, uh, not even Judaism, has that concept. But Abraham uh, put his faith in God and he was right with God. We're also told in the New Testament that Abraham trusted in a God. He didn't know much about God. He didn't know as much about God as we do. But he knew this about God, that God could bring life out of death. Even in his own life, he had no children. He was coming up to a hundred years old. And God had promised him that he and his wife, who was ten years younger, were going to have a child. Would you believe that? He said, my body's practically dead. But he said, if you've promised it, I'll believe it. And so Abraham trusted that God could take even a dead person like him and bring light of it, light, life out of it. Also, God asked him when he did have a son to give that son to him and to sacrifice him to God. And it's as though God said, I want you to put your future in my hand. And Abram reasoned that even if he did sacrifice him and kill him, that God would bring him back from the dead. So Abraham didn't know much about God, but he really trusted him. And finally, I'd just like to move on to how Abram's story is so important for us today. I mentioned that the book of Genesis plants these ideas, some key ideas, which are developed fully, particularly in the New Testament. So what is the little plant of Abraham? How is that developed in the New Testament? Abraham and his plan. Now, I just warn you that this comes with a health warning. This is just a few thoughts and a few ideas of my own. I wouldn't go to the stick for these. But just maybe to give you some ideas, if you have better ideas, I'd be more than glad to, for you to share those with me afterwards. If you don't think much of my ideas, well, that's okay. If you disagree violently, well, please express it as politely as you can. But what I asked myself was, what book in the New Testament talks about Abraham, talks a lot about Abraham and his family, and in particular, the ideas we were thinking about earlier, blessing and cursing? I don't have any Mars bars to offer as prizes. But if I just think to yourself now, which one book of the New Testament talks a lot about Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and Isaac, and blessing and cursing? Well, there's one book that uh, particularly uh, I would turn your attention to, and that is the book of Galatians. It talks a lot about Abraham's faith and about Abraham's family. So let, I just want to select three passages from the book of Galatians, three ideas, and to show you how I think that book maps onto our previous pic uh, picture, if you like, of Genesis. You remember there were three stages when, for instance, God blessed the human race. Then they were deceived, and the result was the curse. And then through judgment, the blessing was returned and indeed restored globally. So those were the three stages in Genesis. So let me just pick out three things from Galatians. The gospel to Abraham. Uh, this, this is just a quote direct from Galatians. He said, this was the gospel to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through you. That's what Paul says. So 
in Galatians, here's the promise of blessing. And so uh, Paul says that, so those who rely in, on faith, those who trust God, don't, they're, they're, don't try to earn forgiveness by being good, by keeping commandments, but who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So there is the key to blessing, by trusting God. Now what's the alternative to that? Well, most people in the world actually think, well, to be right with God, you try to be good. You do the best you can. Be a good person. If you're particularly religious, your religion will have lots of rules and regulations, and you think, if I keep those, that will somehow make me right with God. This book of Galatians has a very startling statement. It says, if you try to live like that, you will experience what it's like to live under a curse. That's radical, isn't it? But that's what he says. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He says, if you live like that, he says, you'll be like slaves. So what does he mean here? Well, he's saying that if you, you tr- live your life trying to reach God's standard, whatever that is, you will find that utterly frustrating and unproductive. You will never experience the freedom that you long for of, being, of knowing that you are right with God. So given that's the situation of the human race, maybe wanting to be right with God, turning instinctively to trying to be good, as trying to be good enough, trying to do good works, trying to keep the law, how can we be rescued from that curse? Well, the last quotation is this, that Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is referring to the death of Christ when he was executed publicly on a cross. He took the curse upon himself. A bit like, remember, Jacob's mother said to Jacob, let the curse fall on me. And the result of this, Paul goes on to explain in that book, he talks about you will receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. That's important, fruitfulness in your life. So let's just, uh, if I sum up the lessons then in a way that this story, even the story of Genesis applies to us. The first point is that God's promised blessing to all nations comes through faith in Christ. That's the key, one of the key uh, messages of this book of Galatians, which I think is maybe expounding Genesis. In other words, the little plant that we see planted in, in the greenhouse of Genesis. When it's fully grown, we see all over the world millions of people who have uh, received God's promised blessing through trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, the problem today, then, is that we can, people can be deceived by religion. And that brings the curse of frustration and external control. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says to Galatians, they have been, they have become Christians, but then they were impressed by theologians, Jewish theologians, who said, if you really want to be a super Christian, you've got to go back to keeping these laws. And Paul says, you've almost been bewitched, you've been deceived, just like Satan deceived Eve. He said, you have been lured away from trusting in Christ, and you're living almost under a curse you're going to experience the frustration of that you're going to, the other aspect of being under a curse is that you end up being controlled by religious 
authorities, religious ideologies, and you're not free. And how then do we experience freedom from that curse? Well, Christ, Christ's death saves us from the curse. Christ's death for us sets us free from that. And the Holy Spirit living in us brings blessing and fruitfulness. That's the message of Galatians. I think Galatians is actually explaining what Genesis is all about. But it's interesting that the curse is associated here with religion. Because religion has done more to keep people from knowing God than atheism. Tonight, if you've maybe been brought up in a Christian environment, and you think that maybe because you're brought up with your parents or Christians, that makes you a Christian, I'm afraid that's not true. You're still effectively living under a curse of living to try to be good enough. You're experiencing the frustration of that. You don't have the peace and the assurance that if you were to die tonight, you would be with the Lord. There are many people, not just in a Christian context or environment, but from other religions, who are trying to reach God's standards just by being good enough. You find that very frustrating because you never know when you've reached the required standard. The message of Jesus Christ is that you can be set free from that. You can experience the peace of knowing that you are right with God through trusting God, through trusting in the death of Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. And your life will be set free from the frustration of trying to be good enough, of doing good things because you feel you have a duty to do them. But instead, God's Spirit living in you will make you genuinely productive and fruitful for God. And the fruit will be in your character, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Galatians goes on to explain what the fruit, the fruitfulness, how we will experience that in our characters and in our lives. So I trust as we've looked at the beginning of everything, that maybe gives us a picture of the grand scale of God's plan. That the Christian message was planned thousands of years before Jesus came. The patterns were all there already in the greenhouse, as it were, in the book of Genesis. I trust that everybody here, whether it's Christians or whether you're not a Christian, that you'll see the solution, how to experience God's blessing in your life. That you'll come to Christ tonight or even come back to Christ if you've gone astray from that. But to come to know him in your own personal experience. Let's just close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grandness of your plan. We thank you that Christianity is not simply one more religion among many, but was prepared in history, in ancient history, thousands of years before the reality came. We thank you for how you have educated this world to be able to understand the real core promise of blessing in our lives. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, Many of us here and millions across the world have experienced God's blessing in our lives. We know what it's like to have peace with God, to have the assurance that our sins are forgiven, to know the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and to know that we are right with God. Father, we pray that all of us here tonight would come to that point in our lives where our lives might be fruitful and enjoyable uh, because 
we have experienced the blessing of God. So we give you thanks for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.